Okay, you got to serve somebody. 
That's the message. Even if you stay home, even if you sit down, watch football all day, when there are big demonstrations going on against the corporate takeover of our country, the ultimate privatization project is to put a businessman into public office. Of course, money's going to go to private people. This is the B. And this is uh, Labor and Love, your weekly labor magazine. Uh, commentary, opinions, labor history, news by, for, and about labor from all over the world. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, let's get on here with our introductory set. Las Cafeteras. You know this one.
Here's this blues with a feeling. Another blues from uh, Taj Mahal. Good morning, everybody. And happy Saturday to you. What's your daddy got today? Honey, not in blues, but feeling. What's your daddy got today? I have got to find my baby. She take me all night and day.
somebody else I said, when you want You've been loving Loving somebody else some blues from um, Taj Mahal and welcome it's a Saturday morning welcome to labor and love this is the bee welcome to your weekly labor news opinion commentary magazine by for and about working people We started out with Bob Dylan's You Gotta Serve Somebody. So if the demonstrations are going on and you're sitting at home, you're serving somebody. You can't help it. You may not feel that way. You might not want to be serving the forces of repression, the uh, dictatorship of the rich that we've developed. But if you're sitting at home, they're going to count you that you did, that you you chose against going out and demonstrating. After that, we had Las Cafeteras with their version of La Bamba. Somos Chicanos, they're saying. We're Chicanos. We're Chicanos. We're very proud of it. And the last one was Taj Mahal um, with Blues with a Feeling. And that's from the soundtrack of The People Speak. Hope you had a good week. This is Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, that means someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Capitalism is a zero-sum game. If they're not taking from us... If we're not taking from them, they're going to take from us. Uh, second, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. They probably make deals with your life and your well-being every day. And third, but not least, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's a recipe for failure. Never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, what do we got this week? Uh, well, Fred Korematsu. Day celebrating his brave stand to a book signing later on called Fred Korematsu Speaks Up over in Emeryville. Uh, we're going to talk a little Lauren Hill, play some of her music. Uh, what's happening in Bangladesh with 
massive protests against factory conditions and how it's being squelched and how the uh, Western companies are uh, trying to avoid the issue. Bertolt Brecht, talk a little about Bertolt Brecht. His birthday is coming up on the 10th. What's happening with healthcare enrollment? The news ain't good. And we're going to have chapter three of Fred Glass's labor history, California labor history. Golden lands, working hands. That and much, much more here on Labor and Love. This is our word for immigrants. Lots of folks back east, they say, hell out every day. Hit in the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across that desert sand they go. They're getting out of that old dance bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl. But here is what they find. Oh, the police at the port of entry say. You're number 14,000 for today. treat them well, sometimes we don't. If they have money, it helps so they can pay to come here. 
Sometimes we just don't want them here.
Uh, we started out with Joan Baez, You're Just Deportees. We jumped into Ennio Morricone, an Italian singer, singing the ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti. This is how we treat our immigrants. We blame them for things. Mr. Trump made an art of it and won the presidency by doing that. Blaming immigrants, blaming Muslim people, uh, blaming the victims of murder on the street, blaming them uh, for the problems of our country. And he won. And that's how you do it. So that was the Ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti, two uh, Italian immigrant art, um, uh, anarchists. Who, who were railroaded into uh, the death penalty. They were executed in 1927. How do we treat our immigrants? I mean, what does that say about us? Now, there's a big push to limit immigration back and forth, back and forth. Early on in our history... Early on in our history, we made sure people came by bringing them here under force. So great was the need for labor that we were going out and looking for it. We were going to nations all around the globe looking for it. Let's see. This is the When Week in Review, and uh, I'll look for that. Listen up, When Week in Review is what's happening nationwide. Part of a wave of organizing that includes uh, janitors, food service workers, shuttle drivers, um, but this is the single biggest victory that we've had in Silicon Valley and, you know, honestly, in, in private sector organizing in California. SEIU Service Workers West Vice President Sanjay Garla, 3,000 security officers joined SEIU United Service Workers West in an effort to improve their wages and working conditions. House Democrats joined with the AFL-CIO this week to urge the U.S. Senate to reject Labor Secretary nominee Andy Puzder. Puzder ran fast food company CKE that operates the Hardee's and Carl's Jr. franchises. Puzder opposes increasing the minimum wage and overtime protections. His company has been repeatedly cited for labor law violations. AFL-CIO Vice President Tafari Gebre. The AFL-CIO strongly urges the Senate to defeat this reckless nominee. We are willing to fight. We are willing to take it on the street. We are willing to do anything to provide the backbone to the Senate to do the right thing 
and reject this nomination. 30,000 AFSCME members are voting to authorize a strike in Illinois. AFSCME also says it's headed back to court to oppose an action by the Illinois Attorney General. That motion from Democratic Attorney General Lisa Madigan would dissolve a preliminary injunction won by AFSCME that makes sure state workers keep getting paid despite the state budget standoff. Governor Bruce Rauner is refusing to let a budget pass unless his attacks on labor union rights are part of the budget package. AFSCME has repeatedly urged Governor Rauner to end his insistence that enactment of a state budget must be tied to his personal political agenda of weakening workers' rights. The National Labor Relations Board says two charter schools in New Orleans are not exempt from federal labor law. The NLRB says International High School of New Orleans and Lusher Charter School must begin bargaining with teachers and staff who voted to form unions. United Teachers of New Orleans President Jim Randalls. I think it's a, a real victory for public education in New Orleans because it means that teachers and educators in the buildings can now really work with administrators and the school boards at the approximately 70 schools that are chartered with about 40-some different school bo boards in New Orleans on making their schools the best possible. Three trucking companies are being sued by the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry for wage theft. The related companies allegedly committed the wage theft by failing to pay 95 workers a total of $524,000. Lakeville Motor Express abruptly shut its doors after a shift in November. Greg Davitt of Teamsters Local 120, one of the workers who lost wages, told Workday Minnesota that the trucking companies being sued shut down fast with no advance notice. Ten hours in that day and I get a call from my union steward that they closed the doors. No warning. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham.
democracy Yeah, I got more records in the KGB So, uh, no funny business You already are We had uh, paper planes. Go about making paper planes about all I want is your money. Got an FBI and I'm going to get your money. Um, I want to talk about some... Okay, uh, we're back um, in labor news, okay? Bangladeshi apparel factories are still horrible. What happens to workers who speak up might be worse. This is by Arijali Kamat, Peabody winning an Emmy-nominated independent journalist former correspondent and producer for Democracy Now! in Algeria. And she says, at least 24 garment workers and labor leaders in Bangladesh remain in police custody without bail Friday, more than a month after being arrested during a spontaneous wave of walkouts by thousands of workers at factories in the industrial hub of Ashulia. The protest began at a factory called Windy Apparels, which makes clothes for Swedish clothing giant H&M and British retailer Tesco. Recently, a 23-year-old seamstress at Windy Apparels collapsed on the factory floor after being denied sick leave for two weeks, for weeks. Less than two months later, the factory where she worked has become the epicenter of the country's largest wage protests in years. Their primary demand was for an increase in the monthly wage of $67 to $200, a figure closer to a living wage in a country where minimum wage has failed to keep pace with rapidly rising inflation. Labor advocates told me that their demands also included a stop to the arbitrary abuse and firing of workers, six months of paid maternity leave, and to prevent a recurrence of a death like Taslimas, the woman who fell out because she couldn't get sick leave. Allowing workers who fall ill to take the paid sick leave, they're guaranteed by law. 
As the first group of workers walked out of the factory, many of their co-workers joined them. And as word spread in the days that followed, workers from as many as 40 other factories took to the streets in a series of wildcat strikes. The retaliation was swift and severe, led by factory owners who are members of the powerful trade organization, the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association, and the Ashulia Police. Within 10 days, the strike was over. 85 factories were shuttered, and at least 1,500 workers were fired or forced to resign. Most of them are now having trouble finding work in Ashulia. Owners of eight factories, including Windy Appeals, filed criminal charges against the labor leaders, accusing them of vandalism, looting, and assault. One television journalist was arrested for his coverage of the strike. So let's see what the uh, companies say. This writer, uh, Anjali, asked H&M what kind of pressure they were putting on their suppliers, because this is always the excuse of the big companies that are making so much money off this trade. Oh, well, we just signed deals with uh, contractors. It's their fault. We give them the money and they they produce for us and it's up to them how they do it well as we said at the top of the show capitalism is a zero-sum game the more the contractors and middlemen can take for themselves and the less they can give to the workers the less they give to the workers means more for them because the amount they're being given is limited but they can always depress the salaries of the workers. That's the variable in the situation. If global retailers, let's see this. They, H&M officer Ulrika Isaacson said they were in close dialogue with several stakeholders, including Suppliers, so they're talking to the foxes about the hen house. And referred to a joint letter they sent to the Prime Minister of Bangladesh. We sent a letter along with 20 other brands urging the government to protect workers' rights. Come on, they're workers. Come on, we need them. Okay, do whatever you want. We take a positive view on wage increases and we are prepared to pay the necessary prices. So let's see. Scott Nova from the Workers' Rights Consortium in Washington says, if global retailers threaten to halt garment orders until the unionists are released, people would be out of jail tomorrow, he said by email. Instead, they languish in dank jail cells while the factory owners whose false complaints put them there keep pumping out clothes. And so it goes. That's on uh, Moneybox, a blog about business and economics. The O in their name, Moneybox, has a piece. Maybe not. Anyway, it's, it's from Slate, Slate Magazine. Check it out if you're interested. 
fact, be interested. Let's go to Radio Labor. Radio Labor's news report from labor stories all around the world. Recorded on Friday, February 3rd, 2017. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, a major victory for the anti-slavery movement. International labor leaders condemn the upsurge of right-wing neo-fascist political parties. A Norwegian union helps workers illegally fired in Yemen. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. The fight against slavery in the world has won a major victory with a decision by the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Radio Labor's senior correspondent Seamary Ainsborough has a report. The international labor movement is welcoming a landmark ruling by the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, which ordered Brazil to compensate 125 workers who were treated as slaves at a cattle ranch in the country. The court, which is based in Costa Rica, was established by several countries, including Mexico, Argentina, and the United States. It ruled that workers did not receive promised pay, proper food, or adequate shelter between 1988 and 2000. The workers, who were prevented from fleeing the cattle farm by armed guards, finally escaped after a government raid. Most of them are of African descent. The court ruling was unprecedented because it held the Brazilian government responsible for the abuse of the workers and made it, for the first time, pay compensation. One of the parties granted rights to speak at the trial was the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC represents national trade union centers at the global level. The court accepted the arguments made by the ITUC in its presentation. ITUC General Secretary Sharon Burroughs said, Powerful landholders are responsible for slavery in Brazil, and this judgment makes the authorities accountable for protecting workers from forced labor. Ms. Burrow has been campaigning against forced labor for many years. It's the 21st century, and we have 21 million people, men and women, in forced labor. It's unconscionable that such a crime against humanity could be increasing, and the illegal, the illicit profits from what is modern-day slavery are $150 billion. Nobody, nobody can endorse this. The fight against slavery in Brazil has been set back since former President Dilma Rousseff was deposed by parliamentarians in September 2016. Many of the parliamentarians are under criminal investigation and some of them are suspected of being slave owners. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Leaders of the international labor movement are growing increasingly concerned about the rise of right-wing neo-fascist politicians such as Marine Le Pen in France and Donald Trump in the United States. The Global Union Education International, EI, is especially worried about the effect of the right-wing upsurge on quality public education. Fred Van Leeuwen is the General Secretary of EI. We are entering an economic, social, and geopolitical era of shifting realities. Rising inequality and deindustrialization have taken their tolls on our societies. And anger and frustration over those changes has made many fearful, and in many cases, even xenophobic. 
We shouldn't be fooled into thinking that the problems our societies face are isolated to our own individual countries. In a densely interconnected world, what affects one country instantly affects others. And our entanglements cannot be reversed, but that gives us all the more reason to stay engaged. And as educators, preparing the workforce for the future, but also the democratic citizenry for the future, we must be a leading voice in ensuring that the gains from economic growth are more widely shared and that the darker sides of populism and nationalism not be allowed to take sway. The achievement of quality public education is, as we know, a global struggle. How well the challenges of defending public education are being met in the United States has reverberations around the world. We also wonder what lies ahead for the European Union in the midst of Brexit and the political change looming in upcoming elections in, in Germany, France, and in my own country, the Netherlands. Uh, the extreme right in Europe feels encouraged by Mr. Trump's harsh stand on refugees and immigrants. Mass forced migration has become a test of European unity. Now, if we add to all of this, the unpredictability of the next moves of Mr. Putin or China or OPEC, there are good reasons for all of us to feel uncertain about the future. More than 8,000 people have participated in an online email campaign on behalf of oil workers who work for the Norwegian company DNO in Yemen. The campaign is being conducted by Labor Start, the labor movement's news and campaigning service. Yemen is a country of 24 million in the Arabian Peninsula. It has been trapped in a civil war that has killed 6,000 people since 20. I talked to Espen Lurken about the workers. Mr. Lurken is the head of the secretariat of the Norwegian labor organization Industri Energy. I asked him why the Yemeni workers were protesting. New today, NFL cheerleaders want more money. They are filing a class action lawsuit against the league. Cheerleaders say the league and its 26 teams conspired to suppress their wages. Cheerleaders make a thousand bucks for a whole season. Collectively, of course, you know the players. In a country with no alternative job opportunities, workers have not been paid since then. Even if the court of Yemen has decided that the company should the workers starve, they have no money for medicine, they have no money for the children's school, and you know, Yemen is in a, in a very bad state. The company fired the workers. How did it do that? Did it follow the laws of the country? Not at all. They fired the workers by email and text messages without anyone being notified in advance. There were no dialogue with the union or with the authorities, they just decided to, to withdraw, which is completely not according to the Yemen law and not compliant with how a company should behave. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Star correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,300 stories our volunteers collected in the last week. 
Our top stories section included links to news about the strikes by airport taxi drivers in many cities across the USA on the day the Trump immigration orders took effect, while on the same day a French union was urging flight attendants to refuse to take flights to the USA in their own protest. The reaction of Canadian unions to a terrorist attack on a mosque there and organizing efforts by migrant workers in Thailand. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. In Taiwan, rail workers struck over the Chinese New Year celebrations period. Indian coal miners began a hunger strike to press their demands. The women workers who provide polio vaccinations in dangerous parts of Pakistan were off work protesting the failure to pay their wages, while rural teachers in Zimbabwe walked out of class for the same reason. French rail workers shut down the country's train system in a strike over job security. And Indian municipal solid waste collection workers continued their walkout in an effort to stop the contracting out of their jobs. Our top working women stories included coverage of the lead-up to the election of a new General Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the working lives of Arab-Israeli women, why the Kuwaiti law respecting domestic workers isn't working, and the push for workplace-level gender employment targets in Ireland. The Health and Safety Newswire, rerun in cooperation with Hazards magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about employer resistance to farmworker safety laws in Canada, violence in Iraqi classrooms, and how the gutting of international and national health and safety agreements and laws has already begun in the United States. Currently, Labor Start is running eight online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. on the team, uh, we would be paid $125 per game. And we would be paid that amount in one lump sum at the end of the season, which was for 10 home games, it would be $1,250. The wages drop even more when the cheerleaders are fined for things like missing a practice. Even team mascots earn between $25,000 and $65,000 a year and often receive benefits. Got a part of a, a commercial there, but.
alleges the NFL and its owners conspired to reduce, reduce competition among cheerleaders to make sure they're NFL hasn't seen the suit and would have no comment. In 2014, the Oakland Raiders agreed to pay $125 million to settle a lawsuit alleging they failed to pay their cheerleaders minimum wage. Here's the story. Okay, no story. La 
song dear mr president dear mr president what would have happened if someone like uh, our president would take a walk to the wild side and see how people are living would it change him it's kind of a christmas carol type moment where a tight-fisted greedy businessman gets taken on a trip at night to see how people live. There's a story there. It would be hard to do it well because it's too close to uh, Christmas Carol. Okay, so we had Pink, and before that we had the uh, World News Report. Uh, This is The Bee, The Labor and Love Show. We're going to take a little break now. 
play one of our theme songs. Um, let's see, Lalo Guerrero. Lalo Guerrero.
Benny Goodman closed us out there with Stomping at the Savoy. Tribute to the Savoy Ballroom in New York, where for a long time, which was for a long time the only big club in New York where whites and blacks could socialize, could be in there together. Uh, Benny Goodman. Before that, we had our break song, Lalo Guerrero, Take a Break, Mari Marijuana, That's My Baby's Name, the Marijuana Boogie. You're listening to The Labor and Love Show, and we're coming at you from 2781 21st Street, live today. And uh, always you can find old shows uh, at mutinyradio.fm archives, Labor and Love whatever you wish of our great selection of shows Mutiny Radio is a performance area it's an art studio it's a radio station it's a venue for bands it's a headquarters of one of the major comedy programs in the Bay Area and uh, coming in March There'll be a comedy festival here from March 1st to the 5th. So come on down to Mutiny Radio and find out what's going on, the place where it's happening, and the cutting edge is alive and well. Here's Sister Rosetta Tharp. Mr. Rosetta Tharp is credited with being a major influence on electric blues guitar uh, playing in the U.S. Um, a gay African-American woman. And uh, you can hear how it goes. And the people are so sweet to stay oh, here. And I come in on them. Yeah. Let me tell you what I come in on. Oh, yeah. I know it, right? 
get in. I know it rain. You know it rain. Rain too long. All night long. Rain all day. Rain all night. talking earlier about our immigrants and um, how the U.S. now is uh, cutting itself off from one of its main sources of energy. It's immigrant peoples. It's people coming here hungry and wanting to do something. Uh, People with drive and uh, family groupings that are very strong. America's supposed to be the place where you could make it. So now we're shutting our doors, both to our brothers and sisters in Mexico and to our brothers and sisters all over the world. And when I say brothers and sisters, I mean working people. These people are working people, by and large, 99% of them. And we're being divided. Now we're being told that our Muslim brothers and sisters are terrorists. And that our Mexican brothers and sisters and uh, Latino brothers and sisters are rapists and criminals and murderers and drug dealers. And we're divided. And we're being told that our brothers and sisters who live in the rural parts of the nation, in small town America or small city America, are dumb and stupid for voting for Donald Trump. Another way to divide us. Okay, we have to be together. We have to be able to differ. That's why I love the name indivisible. We are indivisible. Well, anyway, it wasn't, it wasn't always that we've turned away immigrants from our shores. How about this? You get food You won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. Ain't no lion or tiger, ain't no mamba snake. Just the sweet watermelon in the buckwheat cake. Everybody is as happy as a man can be. 
Climb aboard, little wog, sail away with me. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean into Charleston Bay. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean into Charleston Bay. In America, every man is free to take care of his home and his family. As happy as a monkey in a monkey tree. Y'all gonna be an American. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean into Charleston Bay. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean into Charleston Bay. No, so no, far from uh, turning people away at our borders, we brought them here forcefully. When I say we, I mean the governments, the various governments that carried out this uh, horrendous sin, the greatest crime in history, said Malcolm X, with a lot of certitude. Uh, that was Randy Newman, of course, Sail Away. And before that, we had Sister Rosetta Tharp, who is just an amazing the video, if you look it up, of uh, Rosetta Tharp singing Didn't It Rain at a train station in Manchester on a day when it looks like the weather is overcast. So she's there in her overcoat and her guitar absolutely rocking it. This is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. This land is your land. Really? 
Sharon Jones there. Um, very well-known, highly regarded uh, soul singer with uh, Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land. Okay, right now we're going to listen to Chapter 3 of Fred Glass's uh, History of California Labor entitled Golden Land's Working Hands. We got up to the part in L.A. where there was a strong progressive movement building between a socialist mayoral candidate named Job Harriman and very strong union movement in L.A., and then the whole thing crashed. A diary. Like most carpenters, he suffered periods of unemployment. He attended union picnics, was a teetotaler, and took a quiet pride in his craft skills. The wind last night blew down a two-story building on Sacramento Street that was nearly ready for the lathers. This is from the diary of a carpenter who lived in San Francisco around the turn of the 20th century. To pick up a straw hat to wear in the Labor Day parade. The parade was splendid. The paper said it was the largest ever seen in San Francisco. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pass a given point. These numbers are reflected in labor's political strength. Among the marchers is waitress Maud Younger, who helps the working women's suffrage movement gain momentum. The labor vote also keeps the Union Labor Party in power for much of the century's first decade. But city politics are on a smooth ride for working people. Mayor Schmitz and most of his board of supervisors are implicated along with leading businessmen in a nasty bribery scandal. Soon, this is the least of the city's problems for workers and for everyone else. On April 18, 1906, San Francisco was first shaken by a huge earthquake and then ravaged by fires from ruptured gas mains. Over the next few years, union labor enthusiastically rebuilds San Francisco. You are glad that restoring the streetcar lines is a top priority because you need the work. Due to the emergency, workers and unions agree to suspend work rules and wage increases for a time. But when some bosses take advantage of the situation, labor conflict flares. Your union asks for an eight-hour day at $3 pay to keep up with sharply rising living costs. Patrick Calhoun, owner of the United Railroads, responds by locking you out. Perhaps he knows that in two days, he will be indicted for bribery in the spreading political corruption scandals. The first day of the strike, you are enraged to hear that strikebreakers have fired into a crowd of your brother streetcarmen, killing two. Peter York, a Catholic priest and union sympathizer, says, Where there is not justice, there cannot be peace. The Labor Council proclaims a boycott. Let every union man, woman, and child keep away from Calhoun's cars. Many middle-class suffragists refuse to support the Carmen. It's not their husbands, sons, and brothers on strike. You are heartened when working women, upset with their middle-class sister's lack of sympathy, show their solidarity with your cause by forming the Independent Wage Earners Suffrage League. You are also pleased with Mayor Schmitz when he rejects Calhoun's request to put police on the streetcars. 
You'd rather the police pay attention to the scab Carmen and their continuous violence against strikers and the public. But after six months, San Franciscans grow weary of walking and bicycling to work. You lose Schmitz when he is convicted in the Union Labor Party corruption scandals. Calhoun waits you out behind his private army of strike breakers. A political fight erupts between union factions over whether to support the scandal-ridden Union Labor Party. Your union gets caught in the middle, and your strike fund shrinks. Hungry, you are forced back to work at 10 hours a day in the old pay scale. You have been defeated by divisions in the labor movement, by the public taint spread over all unions by the corrupt Union Labor Party, and by the superior resources of capital. Six of your union brothers are dead. The Carmen's Union is crushed, not to be rebuilt for years. Politically, though, things improve. Building Trades Council leader McCarthy rids the Union Labor Party of its corrupt elements, promising a clean administration he's elected mayor in 1909. He faces an immediate challenge. San Francisco employers tell him that if the unions do not organize Los Angeles, competition from its cheap labor will bankrupt San Francisco businesses. Business leaders issue a warning, go south and organize Los Angeles or accept the open shop. Early in the morning on October 1st, 1910, explosions rip through the Los Angeles Times building. 20 newspaper workers die. General Otis immediately accuses unionists of planting a bomb. Labor leaders point out that workers in the building had complained for weeks that gas fumes were making them sick. When Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara and his brother James are kidnapped by private investigators and thrown in jail, accused of the bombing, unionists widely believe that they are being framed. Radical attorney Clarence Darrow is persuaded by Sam Gompers to join Job Harriman on the McNamara's legal team. Contributions for the McNamara's defense pour in. Labor Day 1911 is declared McNamara Brothers Day by Gompers and the National AFL. With the assistance of San Francisco's strong union movement, a major organizing drive is launched in Los Angeles, bringing the number of union members to its highest point ever. The McNamara Brothers case helped stoke simmering feelings of injustice felt by working people. Emotions are further inflamed when at the urging of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, the Los Angeles City Council passes an ordinance banning picketing. Harriman defends scores of union members rounded up, often beaten, and thrown in jail by police enthusiastically enforcing the new law. In the midst of these events, Harriman announces his candidacy for mayor of Los Angeles. At a July 4th rally, he promises to repeal the anti-picketing law half an hour after his election. Harriman wants to convert the city's utilities and railways to public ownership, build public baths, swimming pools and libraries, provide free textbooks in the public schools. In a direct slap at Otis, he promises a publicly financed weekly newspaper. Harriman also pledges to investigate Otis and a number of his rich friends who had profited handsomely from construction of the Los Angeles aqueduct, now nearing completion. Just by coincidence, Otis and his partners owned the land on which the aqueduct terminated, suddenly making their desert holdings extremely valuable. As the primary approaches, John McNamara, while not himself a socialist, endorses Harriman from his prison cell, saying, There is but one way for the working class to get justice 
elect its own representatives to office. Even Sam Gompers comes to Los Angeles to urge Harriman's election. Harriman's campaign is headquartered in the Los Angeles Labor Council building, a sign of the growing closeness of labor and the socialists. G.W. Whitley, leader of the Afro-American League, endorses Harriman and runs as a member of his slate for city council, the only black candidate in the election. This is the high tide of the socialist movement in America. In 1911, hundreds of socialists are elected to local and state office around the country. In 1912, Eugene Debs would receive nearly a million votes for president. Branches of the Los Angeles party are formed by ethnic groups, young people, and women who will be voting for the first time in a municipal election. The primary results become Otis's nightmare. Harriman, in an open primary, places first in a field of five. Labor leader Fred Wheeler receives the highest number of votes of any city council candidate. The newspapers go to red alert. The Express warns that a Harriman victory would signal the end of LA's prosperity. The Times swings its support to the runner-up, George Alexander, for the general election. Harriman assesses his rival. He never heard of a social problem and would not know one if he met it in the street. The Los Angeles Socialist Party, supremely confident, holds huge rallies for Harriman. Unfortunately, there is something Harriman doesn't know. Clarence Darrow realizes the McNamara's are guilty. To save the lives of his clients, he cuts a secret deal, approved personally by General Otis. Four days before the election, without informing Harriman, the McNamara's switch their plea to guilty. Thousands of disillusioned voters change their minds about voting for a man associated with admitted bombers. On election day, Harriman loses. John McNamara later blamed Darrow for misinforming him. We were led to believe that the prosecution had evidence to convict some of the most prominent leaders of labor, and that only a confession by Jim and me would or could have saved them from the gallows. It was not to save our lives, but theirs, that finally constrained us to agree to a confession. Stunned union leaders and rank-and-file members all over the country distanced themselves from the McNamaras. Defense contributions dry up. James McNamara is sentenced to life, and John McNamara to 15 years in San Quentin. The Los Angeles Union organizing drive dies with their conviction. For a brief moment, the working people of Los Angeles could almost touch the twin possibilities of political power and unionization. But that potential falls victim to the McNamara's decision to settle labor's score with Otis with a bomb. Although socialists Fred Wheeler and Estelle Lindsay are elected to the city council soon afterward, the Socialist Party begins to decline. This occurs even as some of its demands enter the mainstream, like progressive laws creating workers' compensation and the eight-hour day for women. Job Harriman becomes convinced that the capitalist class is too strong to allow workers to take real power through the ballot box. He helps to form Llano del Rio, a socialist cooperative colony outside Los Angeles which flourishes briefly. Years later, Eugene Debs reflects, If you want to judge McNamara, you must first serve a month as structural ironworker on a skyscraper, risking your life every minute to feed your wife and babies, and then being discharged and blacklisted for joining a union. 
Every floor in every skyscraper represents a working man killed in its erection. was a chapter three from Fred Glass's uh, History of California Labor Movement, uh, Golden Lands, Working Hands, telling about the devastating effects of the confession of the McNamara brothers in the 1910 bombing, 1911 bombing of the Los Angeles Times building and how it kind of broke the back of labor in L.A., Well, when they were so close to winning. Okay, it's uh, 11.41. As always, this show is dedicated to the 150 people here in the United States, workers who will die today either from accidents on the job or happenstances or job-related conditions. If we look at that number worldwide, it's 3,500 workers, brothers and sisters all over the world, will die from work-related causes, either on the job or off. This day in labor history, Today in labor history, we're talking about Emma Tenayuka. Emma Tenayuka, a young organizer in San Antonio, Texas, during the late 1930s. During the 30s, U.S. citizens of Mexican heritage were repatriated to Mexico. 400,000 Mexican-Americans were deported during the decade's first four years, many U.S. citizens living here as long as 40 years. And it's all about, it's all about labor. When we need, quote unquote, cheap labor from other countries, we open our doors. We, we have a uh, Contractors going south to attract people. Uh, we bring in workers, virtual slaves from other places. 1938, Emma Tenayuka, young Chicano organizer, leads a month-long strike against low wages at the Southern Pecan Shelling Company in San Antonio, Texas. A successful strike, by the way. After one month, the company settled and raised wages, even though shortly after, they moved out of uh, San Antonio. Amatenayuka was married to Homer Smith, the president of the Communist Party in San Antonio. Uh, 
At one point when she went to speak, the Ku Klux Klan threatened to come and kill her. Soon after, she left San Antonio and eventually settled here in San Francisco, where she was a public school teacher in Matenayuca, one of our labor heroes. 1977, Iris Rivera, a Chicago legal secretary, lost her job because she refused to make coffee for her employer. She said, I don't drink coffee. It's not listed as one of my job duties. Although she was not rehired, her case resulted in large-scale protests by Chicago secretaries and generated considerable network news damage. Uh, coverage. Nineteen seventeen, three hundred newsboys organized a protest to protest a cut in pay by the Minneapolis Tribune. January twenty fifth, nineteen forty one. A. Philip Randolph, head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the most prominent civil rights, important civil rights leader of the World War II era, called for a march on Washington to protest discrimination in defense industry work. The success of this movement in convincing the government to act on employment discrimination both opened unprecedented economic opportunities for African Americans during the war and helped lay the groundwork for the modern civil rights movement. Black leaders threatened to have a march on Washington to dramatize the issue. Uh, President Roosevelt caved in on June 25th. He issued Executive Order 8802, which prohibited racial discrimination in the defense industry. Milestone cannot be overstated. Okay, well, this is the B, and it's about time for us to get off here. I want to wish you a good week and good work. Shout outs to Sylvia, Bita, Sumni, Malene over there in, in Qatar. Paulina, everyone out there, you know who you are, I hope. Have a good week. Remember, if someone gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a place, at a chair at the table, a negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never let anyone in your heart who is not a friend of labor. Good week and good work.
Alex. Ed, can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking.